0: This episode of the Filmmaker Mixer podcast is sponsored by Reeds Cleaners in Austin, Texas. We launder everything but money.
1: This episode is also sponsored by Piers Henry Headshots, shining the spotlight on you. Welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast. My name is Andrew, and I'm joined alongside my co-host, Jeff, as always. And today we have a unique and very special guest on the show. That is Ira Deutschman. He's a filmmaker, along with being heavily involved in the marketing and distribution space.
0: Ira talks about his years with distribution powerhouses like Fineline and UA Classics. He talks about his documentary, Searching for Mr. Rugoff, and gives his predictions on where the industry is headed. Hello, everybody. This is the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, and tonight we are mixing it up with an amazing guest. This gentleman has worked on tons of movies. He's a producer, a director, a film marketer, he and I met at the Sundance Producers conference years ago, and I've always considered him a force of nature in the indie film world. uh We're talking to Mr. Ira Deutschman welcome sir
2: uh glad to be here and thanks for that really generous introduction
0: <laughs> No, I've always admired your work you've been uh, I, i'm I'm a fan I'm a fan um as I mentioned uh you have a long legacy of film work uh, but first, let's get to the most important thing because Andrew and I both attended the same small. High school in Clifton, Illinois. And you, sir, are a Cubs fan. You are, uh, you lived in Illinois for a while.
2: Yep. I grew up down the south side of Chicago. So by all rights, I should have been a White Sox fan. But, um, <laughs> my dad was a displaced Dodgers fan. He was originally from New York. Oh, right, right. And so he took me to Wrigley Field as a kid to see the Dodgers play. And, um, it's hard to hang out in Wrigley Field without falling in love with the Cubs. So, uh, so that happened. I, I it's funny because you know I live in New York now and um I remembered this lesson of what happened to me when my kids were around the same age. And um I decided that if they became Mets fans, I would have to kill them. So <laughs> so I, I I really indoctrinated them to become fans.
0: That is funny. That is funny. Um so listen, I one of the things I'm always curious about when I talk to people in the industry, um oftentimes People get into this business because of something that happened to them at a young age. So I'm curious if, if you saw a film or a stage play or had some, you know, profound experience that made you think, "Gee, I'd I'd like to be in this business," or did that happen later in life for you? How did you make that decision?
2: It's, in, I mean, in terms of it being a career, that happened um, kind of organically. But my obsession with film happened. You know, if I had to point to one. One aspect of it, it was the fact that my family moved around a lot. And um, every time we moved, I was put in a position where I had no friends. And on weekends and evenings and any chance I could get, I would hang out at the movies. I would just, you know, um, that that was my thing. And I was lucky enough that when, I, when this was happening, which was, uh, you know, in the 60s and 70s, it was a time when I was uh, you know, confronted with this
0: incredible
2: wave of of amazing movies. and 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 frankly, in many cases, there were movies that were inappropriate for me at my age, but I went ahead and saw them anyway. And you know, in some cases, I feel like I didn't even understand what they were about, but I knew how powerful the filmmaking was, and it really impacted me in a big way. So I feel like I was kind of scarred by, spending so much time alone in movie theaters um and and you know when i went to school when i went to college which i i went to northwestern as a a radio tv film major um i did not necessarily think at the time that film was going to be the direction that i was going to go in and certainly not in the in the general career direction that i ended up in but um within college i started working um as a projectionist for the film society. I started programming a couple of film series. I ended up uh, working on uh, the activities and organizations board. And um, little by little, I just got a taste for things that ended up serving me really well career-wise, much more so frankly than any of the courses I took. And, um, And so when I graduated from college, was when I started to think about it in terms of it actually being a career. I had no idea what direction it was going to go in, but I, um, but you know, it, it was clear to me that I wanted to have something to do with film. Interesting. And so, how did you end up working at places like Fine Line and
1: UA Classics? What led you to get involved in the marketing and distribution
2: end of it? Well, this is this is where um, my uh, uh, you know where I get to plug my movie. <laughs> um, you know, I I made a movie about why I ended up in the film business um, called Searching for Mr. Rugoff. Um, basically, when I when I graduated from college, my parents at that point were living in New York, and um, I uh, I moved to New York on the naive assumption that there was a film business here, um, which there really wasn't. I sent out resumes to all of the major studios to their New York office, not understanding that the New York office was not where the jobs were, everybody was in LA. And um, and to this day, I still have a, a file folder filled with all the rejection letters that I got. Um, but uh, I I ended up going to see a person who I had um, I'd never met him, but I had uh, dealt with him by phone when I was at Northwestern and when I was running the film series there. Um, a guy by the name of Blaine Novak, who works for John Cassavetes. He was the um, person working with Cassavetes on the distribution of um, the uh, the film, A Woman Under the Influence. Um, so I contacted this guy, Blaine Novak, who worked for John Cassavetes and was, was actually handling the distribution of the film, um, A Woman Under the Influence. And I had Produced, I think, is the right word for it, and promoted the Midwest premiere of A Woman Under the Influence when I was at Northwestern, you know, on campus. So he was the only real contact I had in the film business. And I went to to visit Blaine, and he he said, you know, I just heard that they have a job at this company called Cinema Five in non-theatrical sales, and you know, let me call them up, and maybe you can go over and meet them. So he made a phone call, and next thing I knew, I was running up like six or seven blocks from his office to um, the Cinema Five office, and I ended up confronted with Don Rugoff, who was the guy who ran this incredible company that distributed and and distributed and marketed all of these amazing movies that I had really grown up with. Those very movies that I talked about earlier that affected me so much when I was a kid. A lot of those films had been distributed by Rugoff. Things like. Z and State of Siege and uh, Putney Swope, Greaser's Palace, Marjo, um, you know, uh, a lot of foreign language films and documentaries and things like that. That you know, I ended up going to see as a teenager, and um, and Rugoff was the distributor of those movies. So um, I ended up getting the job and working there for about three years. And Rugoff was a lunatic. I mean certifiably crazy in lots of ways and you know I I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about it here cuz you can rent the movie it's on <laughs> it's on Amazon and it's on uh, uh Google and iTunes and it's on the Criterion Channel and you know it's it's just about everywhere at this point but in any case um he was my first boss in the film business and I didn't realize at the time how much I was absorbing um of the you know just about every aspect of the film business inside out and backwards because Rugoff not only was a distributor of all these independent films, but he also owned a chain of theaters, which was the um prestige theaters, mostly in Manhattan, but he had a couple of locations elsewhere. And um, you know, it was a chain of about 14 theaters, and they were really classy, beautiful places that, you know, just about every filmmaker wanted to play their films in those theaters so i learned about the exhibition business i learned about the distribution business i learned about marketing i i ended up within that 3 year period going from non theatrical sales to theatrical sales to co-op advertising and then uh, i spent the last 8 or 9 months that i was there as the head of acquisitions for the company so all of that happened to me very very quickly and um and i walked away with this incredible knowledge that um you know i i, I always refer to it as i got on this roller coaster and I found out that I was pretty good at it, so I I just continued in that in you know in that direction. Even though my original plan was to try to be a filmmaker, um, I ended up doing marketing and distribution and really loving it. And uh, I stayed in that area for a very long time before I finally turned back to becoming a, a, a filmmaker. I'm, uh, I guess you could say a filmmaker again.
0: So I do have a question about film uh, distribution and marketing, I was always curious about this. So when you were at, say, UA Classics, I think you were head of marketing, is that right? That's right. And um, I think Tom Bernard was in sales, and I forget who was in acquisitions.
2: It was Donna Gialotti was in charge of acquisitions.
0: Okay, so my question is, when it came to to picking a film for distribution, um, did did the person in the acquisitions acquired, acquire it and then you had to figure out the strategy or did you have input on this is a good choice because this is how we would market it and and Tom had input. Did the three of you sort of work together to choose what films to pick up or did you, um, you, you know, how did that process work? Yeah, well, UA Classics was kind of unique in that
2: um, there was a very top-down um, uh, management approach. The person who UA the the fact that UA Classics became a first run art film distributor was really the brainchild of this guy by the name of Nathaniel T. Quit Jr., who at the time I think his his title was something like a head of special projects or something like that, and the UA non theatrical department was under his wing as well as um, UA Classics, but also um, United Artists Home Video was under his umbrella, and it, this was in the very early days when home video was literally just starting, and um, and and Nathaniel Quitt had, I think, his um, his eye on becoming the head of UA. He was he was working his way up within that organization, and UA Classics was really, in a way, um, a way of him showing off that he could do better than the UA people in terms of getting attention and making money on these little movies. So, um, so he, you know, he made all the final decisions about acquisitions. Um, in the earliest days, when I first joined the company, it was really just Tom and I and Fan Quit who made those decisions. You know, we would give our input, Fan would make the decisions, and he would finally make the deals. And then Dada was brought on as an acquisitions person a little bit later. And at that point, she was really the, the, the main person who was on um, finding these movies. In many cases, decisions had to be made, um, uh, you know, on the on the run at a film festival, uh, where perhaps Tom or I were not there, and as a result, um, you know, she'd be probably speaking to Than Quitt by phone and and you know making decisions about what was going to get bought or not bought. Um, so, so I mean, you know, it, it's like it sort of shifted over time. Um, Later on, when I was running Fineline, which is a, you know, perhaps, or or Cinecom for that matter, um, in both cases, I feel like the strength of both of those companies was that we actually did not acquire movies without having the entire team be part of that decision whenever possible. Because again, there are moments where you have to make snap judgments um, at a festival or during a bidding war for something where um, those decisions have to be made immediately. But whenever possible, we would bring in the entire team and try to get their, or as much of the team as we could, and try to get their opinions. Um, you know, because you know, ultimately, it is a marketing function. You know, trying to figure out which films to acquire, you've got to have an idea of how you're going to market those movies, because otherwise, you're 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 flying blind.
1: Yeah, you've had your fingerprints on a lot of great films like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Stop Making Sense, Pumping Iron, A Room with a View. Was there a project that maybe the rest of the team at any given company you were with at the time wasn't on board with that you really had a champion?
2: Yeah, I mean, first I want to just correct—I I really had not that much to do with Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I, I handled the non-theatrical rights for the film, so I was selling it to colleges and to libraries and stuff like that. But um, I can't take a whole lot of credit for that. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I I guess you know you talk about a movie that that. Um, I I acquired where the team was not on board or or vice versa. Yeah, I would think where you were on board and other people weren't quite yet and you had to kind of champion the film. I guess the best example of that that I could think of offhand is probably Hoop Dreams. Um, That was a movie where um, I was absolutely convinced that the film was going to make money. Um, I knew it was not going to be easy, but... um, I I just I just felt it in my bones. The movie was just too good. I knew it was going to be a very challenging marketing job, and um, and I had already made the deal and had acquired it when we thought, because I had to just get it done when we had our first screening for the rest of the team, and um, and I have to say there was a lot of pushback, particularly from the parent company, from the home video division of New Line. Which you know gave me estimates of how many home video units they thought they could sell, which was an important part of my P and L, um, and those estimates were so low that it you know the movie would have had to have been an enormous success to break even, and um, and I, I mean <laughs> a lot of people thinking I was just totally crazy for buying that movie, um, but ultimately you know it, the the film ended up doing extraordinarily well. And uh, I feel like, you know, the the rest is history.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Is there a certain trait or characteristic now that you look uh, for in projects that maybe leads you to think this
2: one will be a success in a certain way? Not really. Uh, You know, there's got to be, you know, when I teach about marketing, I always talk about how every film has two. Completely unrelated aspects to it that you have to measure. And and of course, there's no real measurement. It's all instinct. But one of them is marketability. What do you have? What does that film inherently have that makes it marketable? Are there stars in it? Is the director well known? Does the director have a track record? Is the genre a genre that's easy to communicate? Is it going to get good reviews? Going to have a festival life? Is there some aspect of this movie that is going to be really appealing to a particular niche audience that might be interested in it because of its subject matter, those are all things that have to do with the film's marketability. And then there's this other completely distinct aspect of it called what i that I call playability, which is you know when you finally put it up on the screen in front of an audience, theoretically, the target audience, the group of people who we've identified who would be interested in this particular movie, when they finally see the movie, do they love it? Do they hate it? Do they feel neutral about it? Do they love it enough that they're going to like beg their friends to go see it? Are they going to want to see it again? That Those are all measures of the playability of a movie. And you know where a film um, actually uh, appears on the chart, if you will, of marketability and playability really determines whether there's any possibility whatsoever that that film can ultimately make money. Um, now that's a construct that's easy to talk about, and I can even, you know, when I do it in class, I visualize it with a chart. Um, but the reality is that all of those things are not measurable, so you're still going by your gut instinct. But you know, the one thing the, the, I have to say that the the biggest thing that I took away from my whole experience with Rugoff um, that that really Uh, you know, informed my career from then forward, and I think has informed an enormous number of people who have worked for me over the years in all of my incarnations. And that is that a film's got to have a hook. You've got to have a way of talking about it that intrigues people, that makes people want to see it. They don't. People don't go to see the movies because it's like, oh, it sounds interesting. It's not. That's not good enough. It's got to be you know this is special this is unique this is different this is um you know it, it it sounds fun fun can be many different things to many different people because serious movies can be fun by challenging you or by giving you an emotional experience or whatever um different target audiences have different things that make something entertaining to them but you have to know what the audience is and you have to have a, a pretty good idea of of, of some aspect of the movie that's going to draw them in,
0: and and by hook you don't necessarily mean uh, a story element of a hook. You mean it could be that, or it could be the talent, or it could be the the climate, the the cultural climate at the time. I mean, is is that what you mean? Or yeah, I mean, it just
2: it's it's some. There's a way of talking about the movie that we can get other people to talk about the movie and and make it sound attractive to an audience. A hook can be a press angle a Hook could be, um, you know, a, 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 an idea about um, the way the art's going to look. It could be, you know, like a, a slam dunk trailer. I mean, it could be so many different things. But it's there's got to be something special about the movie.
0: Interesting. Uh, you know, you mentioned. Um, uh... Don Rugoff and, and I did see your documentary. I think, think it's really, really good. Um, but I'm curious because you said that he sometimes had brilliant ideas and sometimes had insane ideas. Um, and sometimes it takes an insane idea to create a success. So I'm curious, did you take a little bit of that insanity with you when you went on to the other companies? No, you know, I, I wish I had more of it, frankly. <laughs>
2: I, you know, like I, cause I do think there's an aspect of it that you do have to be a little crazy to see the potential in things that other people don't see it in, um, or, or to come up with these outrageous marketing ideas. I mean, I, I, I've tried to emulate that to the extent that my stomach will allow me to, but I'm not a bungee jumper by nature. I'm not, um, you know, like I, 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 I have to say that, that if anything, when I watched Rugoff through that three-year period that I worked there, he was at the pro- in the process of running that company into the ground. And I, you know, one of the lessons I took away from that was that you can't, like, you know, risk the whole company on an instinct or out of whim or whatever. Um, and that's something the Weinstein certainly were capable of doing. But I never could bring myself to that. My risk level, my personal. Ability to to you know to bet the store was just not there the way that it can be for others, and um, and you know like I I feel like maybe I overcompensated perhaps a little bit too much, but um, but I, I you know I don't have any regrets I don't I don't mean to sound that way but I I do I do feel like um, I I was a relatively conservative player when it came to um, you know. My choices about the films that I distributed, and also about you know the kinds of money that I spent uh, marketing these films, that was something Rugoff always overspent. Um, It's it's really interesting because I feel like to some extent, if you if you follow the trajectory of mine leaving Rugoff with those feelings that I was just talking about, and then my next job after that was at UA Classics, where I was working with you know Tom Bernard and. And and uh, you know Tom uh, Michael Barker was there at the time as a salesperson, um, and now Tom and Michael went on from UA Classics to Orion Classics to Sony Classics. I do think that some of the ethos that I brought with me in my in reaction to what happened at Cinema Five is still part of the Sony Classics ethos, in that those guys are very cautious about the ways that they spend money, the movies that they acquire. Um, to their credit, because by the way,
0: it's probably one of the reasons why they're still around. Makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I want to uh, pivot back to film festivals for a second. Um, I know you were a creative advisor to Sundance, I believe, and you know, obviously, you were heavily involved in distribution. Um, I'm curious because I can remember, you know, in the '80s and '90s, hearing about these breakout movies at film festivals, and Maybe it's just because that's when I was becoming aware of film festivals at the time that I remember it this way, but it seemed like, excuse me, but it seemed like that was a time where, where distributors kind of leaned in toward festivals to look for product. Um, Is that true Uh, or has it, have they always gone to festivals? Um, And if they did lean into it at that time, you know, why do you think that happened and does it still happen today?
2: it's you know it, it ebbs and flows the um you know the, the there's two different things that the two different trajectories that we could talk about one of them is just that festivals becoming markets was something that you know i think began in the 60s but really caught fire in the 80s and 90s um you know where uh you know where where we're truly festivals were um, you know went from being artistic showcases and political showcases to being marketplaces um but the but that that trajectory, while it's true that you know the marketplace just kept increasing um you know from from the festival perspective uh in terms of the appetite for acquisitions, meaning you know how many films actually get acquired at festivals the you know that that comes and goes and and you know there seems to be waves in which when there's a lot of competitors at any given time the you know automatically the prices go up for acquisitions so the risk goes up the risk factor goes up dramatically and um and so what a lot of companies do to compensate for that because they don't want to get into bidding wars for the available movies is they start getting involved earlier and earlier by investing in production or by pre-buying movies, et cetera, and they fill their slates with films that they were involved with from the start. But actually, while that seems like it's a good thing to do, it tends to backfire because the minute you get involved with a movie prior to being able to see it as a finished film, the the risk only increases. You know, You, you really have no idea what you're going to end up with at the end of the day. And um, and so a lot of companies go through these cycles where they're acquisitions driven, and they start getting into production. Then they recoil from production and start going back toward acquisitions, and you know it just keeps going over and over again. And the marketplace is only as competitive as there are numbers of competitors. And because the independent film business has a gen has a you know a, it's a very risky business and. There are times when a lot of companies get themselves into big financial trouble and end up going out of business or retrenching their businesses dramatically, in which case there are fewer competitors. And so the ones that are still, you know, still have resources and still interested in being aggressive have more available to them at cheaper prices because nobody's bidding against them. And then that always opens up the field for people to say, oh, well, maybe we should be getting aggressive again, or there's a new company that's, you know, coming along you know historically the you know whenever there's a new company they're usually trying to prove that they're a serious competitor and they so, tend to overpay for films so suddenly the marketplace gets very competitive again and you know again it all goes in cycles
0: interesting interesting um i want to switch back to to actual production for a moment if you don't mind um regarding your documentary searching for mr rugoff i'm i'm curious what what convinced you that that would be a good story to tell, and then also, um, what were the nuts and bolts of how you got it made? And in other words, once you decided to do it, what was the game plan? How many crew members did you have? Did you travel with crew? Did you, um, you know, just what was a day of shooting like? Because I know a lot of people are interested in the actual nuts and bolts of production. So what do you, I'd like you to okay. Well, that just a bit.
2: the yeah. only part of that I can't do is a little bit. Um, you know the, the reality <laughs> is that I, I could easily do an hour on this subject. Um, so I'll try to give you the short version, but um, the movie started out, I, I call it my accidental film. Um, it started out with me just over the years telling all of these kind of outrageous Rugoff stories about his behavior when I worked for him. And and, you know, dining out on it because they were they were pretty funny stories of, you know, things that happened in the office and the way you know, the ideas that he had and all, all kinds of stuff. And at one point I realized that there that that I was you know, I had a film festival and I was talking to a couple of people who knew who Rugoff was, and there were other people hanging around listening to these stories, and I realized they had no idea who this guy was. And he was such an important figure in the The art film business in the sixties and seventies and the fact that nobody remembered him anymore- re, you know really you know piqued my curiosity um so what the the original idea that came to me was not about making a movie about Rugoff it was really the the idea that all of these people who did remember who Rugoff was were getting old, and that They all had stories to tell too, and I thought maybe there was a oral history in it. Where we, before these people disappeared on us, I could capture some of what it was like in those days, distributing and marketing movies, and you know, a little bit of film biz history that really hadn't been told. So I started um, shooting a couple of interviews, not with any sort of urgency. More, you know, when I was around somebody who. Uh, who I thought would make a good interview, I would try to. I would get a Columbia student to help me out, sit behind the camera, and um, uh, you know, would just do do an interview. And I, in every single case, I would tell them to tell me their story. How did they get involved? You know, I would start out very much like you guys started out this interview. Like you know, what was the single thing that made you be interested in the film business? You know, kind of thing. And my original title for the project, my working title was Cinephile Generation. I had the feeling that there was this generation of people who created the whole culture of cinephilia. And it turned out that as I was interviewing these people, I found out that I was kind of wrong about that. Almost every one of them was telling me that the way that they got started in the business was because they saw that there was a job available and they took the job and they ended up accidentally in the film business. And so that in a way they created the Cetophile generation, which was really my it was really my generation, not their generation. During these interviews, Rugoff's name kept coming up. And I realized that maybe there was a story there and that I should ask everybody to tell Rugoff stories. And I still didn't think it was a movie. I still thought I was just doing an oral history of some kind. And then at one point, I I got some really good stuff, and I started to think maybe maybe there is a, a movie here. I didn't know is it a short, is it a feature, is it you know whatever. And I started to take it a little bit more seriously, and I started to do the research to try to track down people who I had not been in touch with for many 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 years, um, and seeing if I could get them on tape. Some of them had died, some of them I never found, and some of them refused to talk to me. But little by little, I started amounting an enormous amount of footage. And somewhere in there, I realized that if I was going to take this seriously, that um that, you know, I, I should try to I, I should try to do it more properly. But because I have been in the film business as long as I have, and I'm realistic about what the possibilities are for these sorts of things, I never really believed that there was going to be institutional support for a movie like this. Um I I tested the waters a little bit, you know, by talking to people I know who are buyers of documentaries and just seeing, you know, what they thought about the idea. And every one of them responded in this in the way that I expected them to, which was, um, wow, what a great story. I can't wait to see the finished film. You know, as opposed to here's half a million dollars, go make your movie. So I, what I ended up doing was I bought a camera a um uh, you know an SLR um a sony something but I can't remember what it was <laughs> and, and and a lens package and a sound a, a sound package I mean the total expenditure on equipment was something in the neighborhood of three thousand dollars uh the most expensive part of it with a lens and um, and I purposely made it as compact as it co- possibly could be, so that I could bring the equipment with me everywhere I went. And everywhere I went meant that you know every, I' do a lot of traveling to film festivals, to film markets, to you know, guess, speaking engagements. I mean everywhere I went, I brought the camera equipment with me, knowing that no matter where I went, there'd be somebody to interview, and I would you know, if I knew I was making a trip, I'd put the word out that, you know, you know, who else can I get, you know, and go to Cannes and I'd interview five or six people who knew Rugoff and who were able to talk to me about him. So that would became my way of, of making the movie. I, I traveled with the camera and the, and the, you know, the rest of the equipment in a rolly bag. And everywhere I went, I, um, used my Columbia alumni list to, um, to reach out and say, is there any Columbia alum who's going to be in Paris on these dates? Because I need somebody to to work the ca- to operate the camera while I do an interview. And everywhere I went, I found somebody to do it. I did need some money to make the movie. Um, you know, in the early parts of it, the travel was probably the most expensive part of it. But um, but obviously, once I got into the editing room, it was going to become more expensive and. So I did raise some money through a um, fiscal sponsorship, Cartempuin Films in Chicago, which is a a very, very notable um, documentary company who actually is the production company that made hope dreams. They're they're really good friends of mine and they agreed to be the fiscal sponsor, which meant that I could uh, take charitable donations to make the film. And um, I sent out an email to about 50 people who I knew uh, that were potentially interested in the subject matter and who had enough disposable income that they might be able to make a significant contribution. And out of those 50 people, about 30% of them actually made contributions. And that was all the financing I needed to make the movie. So, um, you know, I, I in terms of, of you know, once, once I had the a lot of the interviews in the can i had a better sense of what kind of movie it might be and the biggest struggle that i had was whether to put myself in the film because i i happened to have been one of the youngest people who ever worked for rugoff um meaning that i'm still around that i still have all my marbles or i hope i do um, and um and so I I realized that I remembered a lot of stuff that a lot of these older people who um, I was interviewing didn't didn't uh, remember and and so I struggled with that and I you know I sought out a lot of advice from people who were more experienced at making documentaries than I am and and ultimately I ended up putting myself in the film in, in post production um, you know there was a lot of back and forth in terms of you know is there too much of me is there too little of me is there you know whatever. And reaching that balance was really difficult. I might also add that that I made a um a, when I finally realized I was making the movie, I made a conscious choice aesthetically to not fuss with the movie too much. and what I mean by that is I've seen way too many documentaries where they really aren't direct and light in a way in which they make everything looks look really perfect. And, you know, it has several angles, various shots and everything else. And what I realized was that what I was after was authenticity. I really wanted the subjects to be comfortable in front of the camera and to open up to me. And because a lot of the subjects were people who were in their 80s and 90s, I wanted to um, to be, to, to, to get in and out as quickly as possible. My fear was that if we spent too much time lighting and too much time moving lamps around to make the, make the composition be as beautiful as possible, that I would lose them. So I, whenever I had these students behind the camera, I would, you know, get the camera set up with them as quickly as possible. And I would immediately start conversing with the subject even before we started rolling camera, so that I could get them to open up to me. And I feel like, you know, a lot of them started out with some resistance. You know, I don't know if I'll remember anything, or um, got it, I'm so nervous in front of the camera, or do I really want to do this? I look terrible. I look old, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I I I feel like my concentration on not worrying as much about camera stuff and worrying only about making them comfortable really paid off because after a while they started remembering all kinds of things that, that, you know, they, they didn't think they could remember. So, um, uh, what else? I mean, I found a a young editor who was right out of, of college who, um, had only done short films prior to my film, hired him for a month to work with me to try to shape a couple of scenes just to see how things were cut together and ended up, uh, you know, Brian Gersten is his name. He ended up being an amazing collaborator, uh, and he ended up editing the film and it became his first feature. Um, I found a composer who, uh, had done a few documentaries before, but had never, you know, he, the way he put it to me was I'm sick of doing, um, the score for depressing movies. and I then your movie sounds like it's fun. Um, and uh, he did an incredible job. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many um how many people helped me out with this film um in ways that kept the budget within what I was able to raise from, you know, just those charitable contributions. So the luxury was that um, at the end of the day, I had a feature film that I was really proud of. And uh, and I had nobody to pay back.
1: Staying in the documentary world, uh, you kind of answered it throughout your question. But I'm wondering, you know, it feels like with new popular movies or documentaries like Free Solo or the Last Dance series with Michael Jordan, the documentary world is changing. I remember when I was in high school, everyone was talking about making a murder on Netflix. You know, more recent example is Tiger King. What are the biggest shifts you've seen in that medium that makes them so much maybe more popular now than ever?
2: Well, this is not um, an original idea because a lot of people have been writing about this recently, Um, but there's a common feeling at this point that documentaries are becoming too formulaic and that that's being caused by the streamers. That um, the competition among the streamers to get the highest profile and most interesting documentaries has created a a situation where um, there's too much money flowing into documentary work and and, and in ways in which they're being plugged into formulas that are um, prescribed by the the people who are financing these movies. And so they're becoming very alike Um, and that it's ruining the the whole nature of how documentaries are supposed to be on a certain level, or at least you're supposed to believe that they're um, you know somewhat uh, you know reflective of of some reality um and where they're you know they're constructed in a way in which is nothing to do with reality where where in a, in effect, what's happening is that that reality TV has taken over the documentary world. so it's pretty you know it, it's a pretty bad situation, and the documentarians who have resisted this are having a really, really hard time getting their films financed
1: i'm interested what you're going to say or your answer is going to be to this one because it's something i've noticed a lot more recently a lot of filmmakers or just uh, film critics i've seen talking about it which is biopics or documentaries centered around a person are usually being executive produced by that person or its their estate if they're no longer alive do you think that's also you know a conflict of interest from telling the true story it you know waters
2: down the story at all or what's your opinion on that uh, matter that's 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 one of the the formulas that I'm talking about. And, and 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 you know the it's it's a double-edged sword because the reason why those films are getting made is because the people who those films are about are stars in their own world. they're 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 big. They're subjects who are, you know, inherently commercial. And as a result, to get those people to cooperate with the documentary requires that those people are going to have some control over the content. So, um, so yeah, I mean, those, you know, those films are certainly not going to be the kind of film that might have been made by a completely, um, uh, you know, independent source that was working, uh, you know, without the subject's approval. Uh, you know, certainly my film, um, I didn't have to have the subject's approval because the subject was dead, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, if you're going to make a film about a big star,
0: they're going to want to control it. Interesting. Interesting. That makes sense. Um, You know, turning back to distribution just for a second. um, I mean, this business has always been organic. We had the home video movement, you know, art house cinema. Gosh, I remember driving with my dad to the University of Illinois to watch Chariots of Fire because we could only find it at a college campus. You know, there were so many ways films were getting out there and there were different trends. Um, And of course, now we have streaming taking over. What do you think the next trends in distribution might be? Well, there's a few
2: strands of things going on right now that I think are a clue to where we may be heading. For starters, the subscription streaming business is heading toward an apocalypse. Um, There's no way that that's a a sustainable business that can sustain the number of companies that are trying to compete in it. And, um, And you're already seeing a little bit of retrenchment in that regard Um, you know, it's, which is the source of a lot of layoffs at the moment, the, um, you know, that doesn't mean that there won't be surviving channels, but I feel like what we're heading toward is something that's more akin to the universe that we thought we were getting away from, which was the bundling of cable channels where, you know, there was, you wouldn't subscribe to individual channels, but rather would, you know, subscribe to a whole, you know, a whole bundle of channels. And um, and I think we're 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 generally heading in that direction. And the companies that are best positioned to be able to take advantage of those of that trend are the ones that are already beginning to bundle, um, you know, which are Roku, uh, Bull TV, and um, and uh, Amazon, and you know to some extent Google is going to try to get into that business. We'll see how whether they survive. They'll survive, but I mean in this business um so so you know that's that you know and when you think about that you know one of the questions one has to ask is what is going to be the the locomotive that's going to cause subscriptions to continue to go up with the various channels that do survive and i do think that it's all episodic it's not going to be feature film so i think that feature films are going to go back to being what they always were which is mainly theatrical um and we're you know we are going to be considering uh you know i i would say that video on demand meaning transactional video is going to be the ancillary that's going to be the equivalent of what home video used to be so um so i'm bullish on theatrical i don't think it's going away i think we we're already showing signs that people are re- returning to the movies um and and i do think that after a while uh, you know, the, the big streaming companies are going to be only buying films that have had a theatrical uh, life similar to what was true during the home video boom. And to wrap up this episode, we'd like to do a little segment where our producer,
1: Jeff Weber, leaves a question for the guest. The twist is he doesn't know who the guest is. So it's a lo- little bit of a random question, but I'll play it for you now.
0: If at any point in your career, you've ever felt like just giving up, what made you keep pushing forward and pursuing the craft during those times? Any advice for someone experiencing those same feelings?
2: Wow, it's a good question. Um I don't know that i have ever felt like giving up. Well, I can think of one moment. <laughs> I mean, I guess it would um, you know, I I would you know, i never I don't I don't think I would have said that I'm giving up, but one moment where I was kind of despondent. Um and it it had to do with uh, the fact that that after leaving Fine Line, um, and you know it, it's not a secret that I was fired from Fine Line uh, that uh, you know that that, that it, and it was right in the middle of the Hoop Dreams release, which was really you know a very nasty thing to do. Um, but uh, but then I I ended up. Very shortly afterwards, um, you know, producing movies and one of those movies, which I'll, I won't even mention what it was at this point, ended up in competition at the Cannes Film Festival. And my um, my my experience at Cannes through the fine line years was that it was a very anxiety provoking thing for me, and um, you know because Harvey Weinstein was my competition, he was you know ruthless and and and. Uh, you know, so every time anybody mentioned the Cannes Film Festival, I got a stomachache. But here I was going back to Cannes with with a movie that was going to be in the main competition, and the movie was so badly received in Cannes that um, I I and my partners on the film ended up retreating to where we were staying, a villa up in the mountains, getting drunk and staying there for the rest of the festival. <laughs> and I and, and and that was the one moment where I thought, oh my god, why am I doing this? But, but really, tr- truthfully, I never considered giving up. Every disappointment, every um, setback just made me more motivated to keep going. I've always felt like the thing that was the most fun about the film business was trying to do things that seemed impossible and somehow pulling them off. Because when you do what's easy, you know what everybody wants, which is no brainer, which frankly doesn't exist... That, you know, the, the, the only thing you can do if you're working on something that's supposed to be a no brainer is fuck it up and that's no fun. So, you know, it's, I really, I really don't feel like I ever felt like I was ready to give up. I was always motivated to just, you know, move on to the next thing. And just, you know, every, every setback just made me more determined to keep going.
0: Well, this has been uh, really tremendous fun, and I want to just wrap up, if you don't mind, with a with a quick story. I'm sure, Ira, you don't remember this, but when we met back at the Sundance producers conference, um, I was finishing up a little a little movie I was working on, and after Sundance, I called you, and you probably didn't remember me from all the other people you know you met there, but not only did you call me back, but you spent about 45 minutes on the phone with me. Uh, giving me your best advice on what I should do with that film. And that was such a kind gesture. I've never forgotten it. And for that and for taking the time to share your stories with us tonight, uh, I'm very grateful. So thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Well, you're quite welcome. And thank you for that story. I like hearing things like that because I always worry when you get so busy and you know consumed with your own work, I always worry that there are people who I've somehow dissed. So, um, so you know, when I hear something like that, it makes me feel really good. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you for listening to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, a podcast created and hosted by filmmakers Jeff Stolen and Andrew Lamping and produced by Jeff Weber.
0: Our theme song was created by the genetically modified Stephen Deeb in it.
1: Make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and stay tuned for future episodes.